Diane. It's 8.48 p.m. Welcome to another episode of Twin Peaks Peaks. This week we're going to be talking about Laura's Secret Diary, which is the fourth episode of season two. You saw that I was hunched down <laughs> over the mixing board and then you didn't continue talking? <laughs> no. Because I always forget to let us introduce ourselves, so I was like trying to be good about that. Oh, okay. That's actually, I actually like that reason a lot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, <laughs> for lashing out there at the start of the show. Um, which also, in honor of that, I am Matthew Olson. Um, I'm Ashley Brown. <laughs> you can't even say your name right! Should we start this whole thing over? No. I'm wondering if we should start this whole thing over. You basically just whispered your name and then stopped at the eh in, in Brant. <laughs> My flustered co-host is named Ashley Brand. We can start it over if you want to. No, it's fine. Okay. Um, so you- <laughs> Are you prepared to talk about this episode? Am I ever? Um, but really, like, nothing happens this episode. Um, and we are going to be skipping over revival news because there was some big news this week that has been reported but not confirmed by the production so we won't be covering that, but it I'm is... assuming everyone has seen it by now. Probably. I mean, I probably meant... everyone who's listening to this podcast. Yeah, there's a good chance. That's what um, I meant. With the exception of our two moms. Uh, but <laughs> Shouts out to both Cathy's. To both Cathy's. Hey, <laughs> if you're listening to this, my mom, my, my Kathy, uh, I don't know, pet, pet the dog in say it's from me i don't know anyway uh so no revival news you apparently don't think that a lot happens in this episode so we've got we've got that going on yep (laughs) this is gonna be uh, just a rousing episode uh let's just leap right in then um i'm ready all right let's talk about empty wins give me your thoughts oh my god the empty ones plot line takes up so much time and it, I just don't care about it at all. This just keeps reminding me of that episode of SpongeBob where the health inspector comes. That's all that plotline reminds me of. I don't remember how that episode of SpongeBob went. The health inspector is coming and they like keep hassling these people who they think are the health inspector. Okay. And okay. then they like kill the health inspector. Okay. Yeah. I think I was thinking of the episode where the guy says he didn't get pickles on his Krabby Patty and SpongeBob has a depressive meltdown. I was not thinking of that one, and I don't think I remember that one. It's pretty good. This is I'll now a SpongeBob podcast. I'll check it out. Okay. Um, but this takes up so much time because everyone in town wants a good review from this mysterious food and travel reviewer. Not everyone. The Double R does, and the Great Northern does, and what other locations are there in this town? Answer, none. I mean, yeah, maybe if the Roadhouse was in on it, I would agree. But we get a, we get a scene, a walk and talk, like literally <laughs> um, Ben Horn says, let's have a walk and talk, or something to that effect, which <laughs> I was just like, wow, uh, jumping the gun there a little bit on uh, Aaron Sorkin, but... <laughs> Uh, Ben's just like, oh, cool. There's this food reviewer. That's very good information, Louie. And we <laughs> basically what this plot line is, is way too much screen time for Hank. Um, yep. But a lot of screen time for this new character, Louie, who works at the Great Northern. Um, and she's like really tight with Norma, I guess. 
And like very eager to be in Ben Horn's good graces. Yes. Uh, which I, you know, I don't know if she's aware that that isn't like the greatest place to be. But anyway, uh, can we can we talk about how Louis is probably uh, the first non-white actor or actress to have had more than like, aside from Joan Shen, to have more than like a line in the show? Yeah, I mean, there's Hawk as well, but he usually gets... he Well, he gets a line at a time to like... Did you realize that his, his first name is Tommy? Oh, I didn't know that. Do you get the pun? Yes. That's like, terrible. Yeah. Maybe there's a part of me that wants to forget Hawk. Hawk has great moments that have yet to come in the show, I feel. Uh, and I also feel like the actor like is really serving that performance and like making making his performance a lot better than the material given to him. Yeah. But, oh my God. It's just a little bit too on the nose. But... Louis just gets to be this this super enthusiastic person at the Great Northern. Um, so, point one towards Twin Peaks for not being totally white. On the subject of uh, race in this episode, though, it doesn't stop there because we get Mr. Tajimura interacting with Louis. Um, I guess since we're... Uh, podcast that doesn't spoil future episodes we can't talk too much about this but we can say that mr tajimura already is a totally racist depiction yep it does not take much detective work to figure that out that is a white person in a suit in makeup and it's very insensitive that and is it's, yellow face yep and it is not at all justifiable so if we're yeah, if if there's one thing that damns this uh, this empty Wens plotline from the outset, it's that it's used to introduce Mr. Tajimura. Yep. And I was noticing while I was writing down notes, you said you don't have any notes for this episode, <laughs> but I did think of it's interesting that we get this like introduction to this terrible caricature this episode at the same time as we have a like private scene uh, between Josie and the man who's come from Hong Kong to enforce her agreement with Mr. Eckerd, mm-hmm. uh, where Josie pretty much drops the the I'm not that great at English act, right? Uh, because Josie is from Hong Kong and Josie speaks in a very like Hong Kong, you know, almost British English accent. Yep. Um, and I like. I really wonder then both about like as a character choice, uh, like as, as Josie's choice in her role in Twin Peaks and her like ulterior motives for being there in terms of even with, you know, with literally everybody, Ben Horn, anybody she's having like secret backdoor, uh, backroom dealings with, uh, to adopt this affectation. Um, but also then as a writing decision to write a character who comes from Hong Kong but then uh, is masquerading under not like they're, they're cognizant of the fact that like, actually there's a very good chance Josie would be an excellent English speaker. Um, but then that they've written this character that decides to masquerade as not speaking well um, or speaking fluently, eloquently, so forth. Um, 
I wonder if any of this is alluded to in this in the secret diaries of Laura, uh, because I think that in there it touches on uh, Josie's English instruction. But like that's also like God, she keeps up like the long con of like getting instructed by Laura. Yeah, I mean. It seems more like a retroactive, like, oh, we didn't really understand what Hong Kong was. That's how it comes. Uh, that's how rather it than to a you. real long, like, long con writing decision. Because I, d- is there anything about it that gives you that particular sense? Like, okay, they did have, of course, like a four month break where conceivably someone could have stepped in and been like, why is it that Josie like doesn't speak great English when you said that she's from, and then like someone just like gets red in the face, like, oh shit, we did a bad. Um, like, is there any particular thing that tips you off to that, or just um, an assumption that because this just... show's so white, they probably <laughs> fucked it up at the outset? I mean that assumption, but there's also like no foreshadowing for this supposed like big reveal that like kind of matters a lot to her character. Do you think the big reveal comes this episode? Mm, I'm just talking about her English. <laughs> I'm I'm talking about that as well, but I'm saying like, is this the is like like Josie's Josie's who can, who cannot speak English now um, Matthew Olson uh, her like past is alluded to in season one at least like her other reasons for being in Twin Peaks yeah but they don't tie that in with like this this performance she's giving where she can't speak English and that would be the appropriate time to do that. You th- you, so you think that this, if this was a planned thing, it would have been natural to reveal this con earlier? Yeah, absolutely. Like, why why wouldn't you? Like, I assume in her private moments and in her moments where she's kind of dealing with this other side of her life, she wouldn't go through the trouble of keeping up this accent yeah. that she's affecting. Um, I guess it's supposed to be... I mean, now now the, the squeeze is being put on Josie because of the whole mill fire thing. But I think, I think I'm, I, I'm in agreement that, yeah, maybe this, you know, is an artifact then of the season two of that break and someone stepping in and being like, no, though, like, let me educate you on the history of Hong Kong. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we only have to talk about, like, boring old white people though for the rest of this episode yeah we're well do you do we even want to talk about uh uh truman and josie no that that awkward scene no my only note on josie actually is josie return this is all caps josie returning from seattle equals same with the shopping bags that's so aspirational That that was your observation? Yeah, I really connected with that moment. Actually, I'm trying to to pull weight here and like, you know, try to like carry on you know, a conversation about race which like I'm clearly like only as equipped as a, you know, white male can be. Uh but like, oh my gosh. Just 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 like same? I related to her on a human level and on a femme level. Fair, but like, I'm dying out here. I need some of that, some of that deep, like, insightful, like, observation. I just, I really think there's like not a lot going on in this episode that I particularly care about. It's a lot of plot stuff moving forward in a way that I find to be like pretty, pretty bland. Okay, 
maybe, maybe this maybe this will will light your fire. Let's talk about the very opening of this episode. That is a note that I have. Hi, yes, I knew it. I drew you out of your shell. You're ready to talk about <laughs> film and stuff now. Finally, <laughs> I can give up and I can just go back to drinking my beer. Um. No, I really like the opening scene. I like that we got to see some like real <laughs> camera work um, and some real like cinematography muscles being flexed because you really don't always see that on TV. Um, and I think that it's pretty easy in TV to say like, this is long form and action based. So we don't need to like, you know, get into the, the nitty gritty of cinematic techniques. But um, yeah, I was glad to see that. Um, and I thought Ray Wise gave an incredible performance. In the in the opening scene, I agree, one hundred percent. Ray Wise killing it. Can we just like, in addition to praising the cinematography, praise the fact that to get that shot where they do the spiral out of the like tile, mm-hmm. they had to build a giant version of that hole to thread the camera through. Yeah, that's super cool. <laughs> that's super dope. It also reminds um, me of one of the opening scenes of Fight Club. One one of the opening scenes of Fight Club, like one of the early scenes. Of Fight oh, okay, Club. okay. I was about to I was about to say like, is, is part of Fight Club that there's like multiple versions of this movie? No. Is it like Clue? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did people in different theaters see different versions of Fight Club where like the twist wasn't the same? <laughs> <laughs> what if that was the case though? What if? Welcome I to our looking... Fight Club speculation podcast, Twin Peaks Peaks. <laughs> Um, I was looking at the the list of versions of Blade Runner Wikipedia article today. There are more than I realized there was. They're like, there's a lot. Five or six, right? Five or six big ones. Five or six big ones, and like several working versions that were screened at specific theaters that have scenes that were not released in any of the subsequent versions. Yeah, because Ridley Scott is not David Lynch, and he doesn't know when to let a good project be done. Anyway. <laughs> Could have stopped with the director's cut. It's all I'm saying, Ridley. It's all I'm saying. You looked nicer in the final cut, but you didn't need to go that far. Coming up. Okay. Coming up, uh, an episode of Yeah, I've Seen That about the various cuts of Blade Runner. Well, save your uh, plugs for (laughs) other podcasts for the end of the episode. Um, But also, that would be super cool. Yeah. Um, if, If I still had my HD DVDs of Blade Runner and an HD DVD player on which you could watch them... You could use it for that show. Anyway, back to Twin Peaks. Alas. Uh, we, someone dies this episode. Do you even remember who? No. Jesus. <laughs> I got you. To, who are you thinking? I got you to just like be into it for like five minutes and now it's gone. Baddest. Baddest gets oh, shot. you're right. You're in right. In front of you're Audrey. Right, you're right. You're right. You're right. And it's like, um, Jean Renault that shoots him. Jean, yes. Jean Renault just like comes in and like fuck shit up. He's like, you thought the other, you thought the other Renault brothers were bad. You thought they ran shit. I run shit. I am the number one Renault brother. Also, I sound hilarious. <laughs> My accent is, uh, if not all over the place, just not so great <laughs> it's not even like a fake french accent like that it is something distinctly different distinctly just kind of i laugh whenever he opens his mouth <laughs> uh but i think the the scene where audrey is witness to Bannis's death uh I, I think it's at least well done enough to really drive home that 
the stakes for Audrey is as weird and forced and, and contrived as that situation is are pretty real. Like, well, but I think Jean Renault is like pretty invested in making sure that she lives. And Jean Renault at this point is really in control of the situation. Right. I don't think, I don't think that it means that Audrey is in like immediate physical harm. I just mean that like, I think it does a good job of driving home that yes, while this guy is maybe like, right on the right on the edge of being this like comic uh like french canadian mobster um it's not played too corny when he just shoots this guy um he's a dangerous man and he has illustrated that effectively now um and he sounds like just like the like the worst accent i wonder i it's shame on both of us for not knowing who plays jean renault but if he's actually french canadian if that's actually how he sounds i'm he's, gonna feel like a real 100 percent not i'm gonna guarantee that right now okay don't look it up on your phone though i okay. need you i need you i need you here for this All right what gotta... is what is cooper doing during this episode he gets called into ben horn's office because ben horn is like you and Audrey have a special relationship, and Jean Renault wants you to deliver her ransom money. What else is he doing? He um, recruits a bookhouse boy, yeah. and Harry's like, I'll send my best one. And then he shows up, which is a heartwarming moment. Yes. Also, I failed to see how Cooper was surprised by that, though. Yep. Like, who, like, like he knows who the bookhouse boys are. Does he think like Big Ed is going to accompany him on this mission? Because yeah. Big Ed cannot keep a cover. He cannot. He cannot keep a cover. He's probably not that good of a shot. I'm guessing not as good as Harry, the town's sheriff. Um, Honestly, maybe Hawk would have been a better choice. Well, yeah, it could have maybe like given Hawk some character space to be less of a caricature. Yeah, um, but you know. That's that's still that's still to come. Uh, I like Hawk, but Hawk right now is more background than Andy by a mile. Um, yeah. If Andy was a bookhouse boy, Andy would have been a more likely like not Harry option for this for this plot thread. But of course it's Harry because um, yeah. Harry's your boy. Uh, he he might he may come do this after having had sex with Josie, <laughs> just like. I'm going to do this real quick and then we're going to like maybe like hear what the uh, judge has to say about Leland and then we're going to go do this late night mission. <laughs> like, dude, just like maybe just stay at the office the whole time. Like you're kind of you're kind of like you're already booked Waste, for the night. Wasting some gas money. Honestly. Yeah, honestly. Um, well, it's actually probably taxpayers money. So True. <laughs> whatever. He's a sheriff. He can do what he wants. Um yeah, can we discuss the little detail at the at the roadhouse that Cooper has taken the bar peanuts out of the bowl and kind of yes. like made some kind of triangle in his boredom? Yeah, because uh, triangles aren't richly symbolic in this show at all. No, not at all. But also, just like what is what's he doing? Why not? Why not just like I don't know, read a book or like make another tape for Diane or something? Like, do you think he sends Diane? little little crafty gifts i don't think so i did pick up (laughs) i I don't i'm I'm not gonna speculate on this i i will say that i did pick up a tidbit out of uh out of the uh tapes to diane or what i don't remember exactly what they were sold as but the uh the both the 
transcripts and the audio version that Kyle McLaughlin actually recorded of these tapes uh, that you could pick up at around the time of the second season uh, is that I guess there's a detail where Cooper doesn't send every tape he records to Diane, but he also likes the thought of addressing them all to Diane. Like this is apparently like in this, you know, outside of the TV show. So, you know, canonicity, take it as you will. But this idea that Cooper like does take pleasure in just like recording these tapes like there there's like a function to them but that he takes pleasure in then like addressing them all to diane uh which when we were like speculating like several episodes back like talking about diane does diane exist like what's the deal what does this reveal about his character that would be interesting like if diane's just this person who every once in a while like actually hears from cooper but cooper's just like Da, 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 da. here's another like a, message like a diary yeah but um, that like to me that that says that he's a deeply lonely person who is not okay with like being alone that is that is what i was thinking is the implication there and i kind of like that it makes him feel more human and less like a like a character in a tv show it makes also some sense as to why he would be so ecstatic to like be in this town where he seems to have found some people he really relates to so yeah. um also on the subject of cooper you're asking what he's doing in this episode he's using some kind of archaic form of like personal data assistant like he's like using a little beep boop beep boop beep boop like calculator size like beep, pocket boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. yes a little beep boop beep boop like it literally makes beeps and boops while he's typing on it this is the scene where andy comes out with his sperm sample and he You're loses right. it under the couch and cooper the whole time is tapping away on this like palm, i don't know little palm pilot except they didn't even have those in 1990 little, little beeper was it the apple newton or something like there's like there are like earlier than the palm pilot versions of these little handheld assistants but it's weird i think this is maybe the only time cooper's seen using it yeah <laughs> like ever um and it just stuck out like a sore thumb during that scene during a scene which the comic trajectory of is oh no andy's sperm is underneath the <laughs> underneath the chair like i was just distracted from that whole goings on by oh my god <laughs> glad you noted that yeah um so lucy and andy developments there aren't really any lucy does tell cooper what's up yes she does not tell him that she's pregnant mm-hmm. which i think like and it's her body she can say whatever she wants about it but i feel like if she wants to get some real ass advice might be crucial to disclose yes. i don't know that she wants real ass advice though because he, cooper is the one who brings it up yeah i don't i don't think she wants his advice necessarily and then dick tremaine is a little asshole and he shows up at the sheriff's office and is like here's six hundred dollars for an abortion yes i'm glad that you at least kind of wanted to you're the one to bring that up and want to talk about it because what the fuck like this is why like anybody anybody's like oh dick tremaine what a great character like no in his second appearance he's like here you told me you're pregnant i know how to solve this without discussing whether or not this is the kind of thing you want at all i'll scrape together 650 dollars and just give it to you okay not to mention giving a woman money for an abortion and not offering to accompany her to the clinic or like take her home and make sure she's okay is a cold ass move it's 10 kinds of fucked up and dick tremaine is awful he's a bad man and 
if you take pleasure in watching a almost just like almost unbelievably like forced comic character who is also an asshole if that's like your definition of like oh cool quirky fun character then we're not friends like, i feel like there's a lot of like comedic characters on network tv though fair fair but then dick tremaine doesn't belong in twin peaks yeah no 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 i'm agreeing um, but like is he kind of is he kind of like neil patrick harris's character on how i met your mother are you asking me because i'm a how i met your mother expert because I'm not. <laughs> I literally have never seen that show, and I was hoping you had maybe slightly more information. I've seen some episodes of it, but I don't think Barney Stinson, right? Like, I don't think that that's the kind of show that would, like, have him have that character do something so arch as show up with, like... Well, anything, not, not any, that, but I, I'm saying, like, the general characterization of, like... I'm an asshole and like I don't care and like that's supposed to be my funny thing. No, because he's given like I can't say this. I've seen enough of that show to know that they like try to give all the characters some pathos. Like it's one of those sitcoms that like gets real like sappy like on the reg. Uh, so like mm-hmm. yeah, he's this like he's got his whole code and he's like a ladies man or whatever. But like his life is very hollow and everybody, especially him, knows it because he's like just sleeping around. Whereas okay. Dick Tremaine is just awful (laughs) he's just there to complicate this situation and be terrible but also like funny and he's not funny so he's just terrible he's also another character that i feel like don't doesn't exist off screen Uh uh-huh oh totally like when he's not off screen he's like writing his lines for when he talks to lucy yeah he has no other life um he doesn't even work at horn's department store i bet in the menswear department i bet that's all a lie um yeah um but all of this being said um anyone listening should donate to planned parenthood yes because the house voted to defund them for a year this is the real life news segment of the show no no no, no, like like being really real like planned parenthood is an incredibly important resource for a lot of women for a lot of queer folks for a lot of people of all genders and all types who go there for regular health care and also for abortions which are critical medical procedures for those who choose to have them yes emphasis also on the whole choosing thing because here in this episode we have this clear illustration of a man like carelessly trying to choose for someone else the show i don't think takes a stance on abortion in this moment like lucy is fucking upset but it's not because like we get any sense of like what her actual thoughts are she's clearly upset that this fucking asshole just tried to choose for her also in like the most callous possible way but just like the choice was not hers Mm -hmm. under in dick tremaine's mind fuck that but donate to Planned Parenthood and, like, yeah, support choice. Jesus Christ. Yeah. The government won't. This is a bad world we live in. Yeah. Like, I, I to be, like, completely real, I get, like, 80% of my medical care from Planned Parenthood because they give me a wellness check once a year. And that's the only time I go to the doctor. And I really appreciate that they can do that for me. Yeah, it's super, super important. Like, have you... I just signed up for healthcare for the first time, and that's a fucking labyrinth. 
but I know that if I just like have a little bit out of pocket, I can go to Planned Parenthood and like get most of my shit taken care of. Like mm-hmm. most of the shit that I need to know, like anything that I would actually not just like WebMD and then realize I was just freaking out about for no reason, <laughs> I could go into a Planned Parenthood and if they couldn't do it, they could point me in the right direction. That's absolutely a place that should keep its doors open. Yeah, and and Planned Parenthood really tries to make it easy for everyone who is trying to access their services. Um, And I could say that because I also work in a field where I I deal with medical providers from time to time. And that is not the case with most facilities at all. Oh, my God. One time I had this, like, seriously bad eye flutter uh, that I thought, like, just, like, it was also accompanied by like a dizziness spell so i was like okay and i went to the college health center and then the college health center put me in a taxi to take me to the local hospital where they just like ran this like ultrasound device over my eyeball and said everything's fine and then i got charged so much money mm-hmm. after healthcare kicked in like shit's ridiculous yeah i didn't know any of that was gonna happen I didn't really feel like I had any control over it. So anything you can do to put that control back in the hands of people, especially people in need, like do that. Don't shut that shit down. And on that note, I'm trying to find a segue here where we can get back to talk about the show, but I really can't. Um, Stuff's important. Yeah. No. Twin Peaks less so. It's like less important <laughs> by like but, a mile. Uh, but but donate to Planned Parenthood and like retweet stuff about donating so more people can donate. It's really important. Donate to Planned Parenthood and say in your donation note that they should check out Twin Peaks Peaks <laughs> if they like the show Twin Peaks. And then we'll get some dope people who are involved with Planned Parenthood listening to our podcast that's like exactly the target audience for our show. That's what we've wanted all along. Um, but on the, on the real though, I, I really wish that we saw more abortions on TV because I feel like anytime a woman is pregnant on TV and she doesn't want to keep, uh, you know, the pregnancy, it's always like, oh, well, she's gonna, you know, have an adoption. She's gonna adopt it out. Um, and that's really, that's like not everyone's choice and that's really hard on a woman's body. It's yeah. Um, I can think of at least one show, but let's not get what in the habit th- of spoiling other shows. What are you thinking of? I, I will tell you after the, the, the podcast. I bet you could guess, but let's not do it on the show. Um, for the sake of people who might want to watch that show and maintain surprise, I know I said just last week, spoilers are no big, but... Okay, um, okay. Anyway, uh, I can think of one show, and probably more if I sat here, where, yeah, that's exactly the tra- trajectory, is that like abortion is floated as a possibility and then through some kind of like even if it requires bending over backwards in the plot just like oh no we're gonna you know shake our heads and pretend like we never thought about that um and that's like really 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 bad because the more you can depict something that is you know that happens and that is normal and that should be destigmatized uh the more you can do that, the further it goes towards destigmatizing that thing. And then you don't have, you know, situations where the government steps in and says, nope, uh, to an entire organization that does that and more, like lots more, mm-hmm. on the basis of one thing. Like, television has, like, <laughs> I, I, there's probably dozens, if not hundreds, of examples you can uh, bring to light about television 
as a widespread medium going a long way to increase uh you know acceptance of various things in in you know, well let's not i mean you can you can say that that's a tenuous I link mean, but well... you can just like representation is important in lots of different ways representation is important but i don't think that tv consistently pushes the envelope in a meaningful or engaging way i think that there's a lot of really surface level representation that ultimately doesn't amount to much like if you look at um the representation of queer people um, and and trans people on TV, you see a lot of characters that self-identify as gay and you don't see same gender intimacy. It's still like this gross thing that, you know, you have to to cut the scene when that starts happening. Um, And I think that... um, we see that in a lot of a lot of these situations where where shows are being lauded for um, having this high degree of representation mm. and being progressive, where where it's it's just a gesture, it's yeah. lip service. So you're saying we, uh, yeah, to to so to temper what I'm saying is that like also as much as we can praise it, there's like a lot that like needs to be done. In essence, like there's like yeah, there's lots of surface level things. I agree 100. percent Like there's, yeah, it's. Yeah. Man, for my birthday this year, I received the new episode of new season, the first episode of the new season of Doctor Who, and talk about a show that has had trouble representing things for its long fifty-plus year run. Um, and there were like little like offhand gestures towards like a more open interpretation of how gender works in that show that were played as jokes. Um, and it's like, you fucking like, I'm not going to like give them points for, for opening up the possibility just to play it off as a joke, because that's the same as not opening the possibility at all. Like, that's a huge pet peeve for me. Like the, we've talked about this a couple years ago, but the fourth season of Arrested Development, and there's Mm -hmm. a whole plot line there that can be read as like, straight men don't understand friendship and platonic intimacy, or it can be read as like two people like discovering that they have same gender affection for each other. And that's how I prefer to read it because otherwise the punchline is what? Being gay? Yeah. Uh, Which, I mean, let's be very honest, though, that's been the punchline for like a lot of the the goings on in Arrested Development. Yep. So that's and that's the TV show I still love. And it does it fucks up so, so bad. So, yeah, I think, you know, okay, everything I was saying about TV being progressive at the right times in the right way like yeah but temper that with what ashley's saying which is that like oh my god though if you actually think about it even shows that do a good job half the time 100 percent of the time could be doing so much better yeah and i and we're not saying that is like like oh why isn't this perfect why isn't it having more of an effect and more of just like there are like very clear decisions to to choke back on some of that stuff yep. or to play yep. it off for laughs and maybe if someone picks up on that as progressive afterwards, you pat yourself on the back. But yeah. really, that was never your intent in the first place. And that's all no bueno. That's not good. Yeah. And I think it's it's easy to see someone who self-identifies as gay or is considering having an abortion and, and doesn't or whatever. But I think it's really different to see someone in a same gender relationship, like dealing with those kinds of um, outward facing and inward facing in- issues of identification and um, identity politics. Um, and similarly, like seeing someone go through the process of getting an abortion and not, being in the room when that happens. Having like, not every story be Juno, yeah. essentially. Like, there's a variety of experiences and 
in it's you are narrowing it down to this certain subset and then even then you're doing well, maybe and it's, it's ultimately like very moralizing oh yeah totally you're you're being very moralizing and you're doing you know even then if you restrict to a narrow subset of experience who knows how good of a job you are doing actually representing even that so mm-hmm. um you think we're gonna i mean i think this is where we can talk about it for twin peaks though like without spoiling much this this plot line like lucy would need a full nine months to be pregnant and we only have the rest of season two to go yep (laughs) so just saying uh let's talk about twin peaks it's this television show it was on 1989 1990 it was on in 1990 and 1991 okay so it started filming in 89 Aired ninety ninety one set set in eighty nine. Am I right? Set in eighty nine. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, you know what we are missing? What? Our favorite people. Oh God. <laughs> um, it just like okay again. I love I love fake Dustin Hoffman as Harold Smith. What a great dude! But also some like that. Do scene... you remember his name? No. Lenny Von Dolan. Thank you. There we go. Um, they're like having that dinner and they're drinking white wine. This is Donna mm-hmm. and fake Justin Hoffman. <laughs> Do you remember his name now? <laughs> his name's Harold Smith. Okay, whatever. All right. Um, anyway, and he's all like, I have Laura's diary here. She like left it in case something happened to her. I've read all of it. And then he's like, shall I read from Laura's diary? Which a weird thing to do. That is something you do alone and feel weird about you don't that's not romantic at all and then also this dude has read this diary a bunch of times apparently and he chooses to read a really awkward section that talks about donna in a weird way he goes on for so 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 long down this passage when after like the second sentence it's really clear that maybe this is not a thing that she wants to or needs to hear and he just keeps reading it. And I'm just sitting there thinking, Harold, <laughs> Harold, context, context cues. Read some Harold. body language. No, no, Harold, like in the, no, in the text though, like. I mean, both. No one wants this, but Harold. Harold, Harold, did you take the SAT? Did you take the reading portion where you read the thing and then you're expected to like answer some? Because here's what that passage you read out of Laurel's diary would be: the question, the the question with four bubbles after it would be, should this passage be read aloud to Donna, considering it drags Donna through the dirt and just like is super shitty about her? And then all four bubbles would say no. <laughs> that would be the SAT question about Laura's diary right there. And you you fucked it up so bad. So bad. Um, and also, why why was he so eager to just like pour over this girl's secret diary? Why did he read it multiple times? Why does he want to keep it so badly? Well, cause, cause like, the, I understand he's a lonely dude, but this is a creepy thing. It's a creepy thing, but they're setting it up as his creepy thing because yeah. he's... He collects people's stories. Yep. That is his, you know, I think more so than him being a shut-in or a botanist or whatever, that is his, like, Twin Peaksy quirk, is that he is, you know, in terms of, like, his log is that he is the person who has this collects mission secrets. to collect people's life stories. Um, and that is think... related to his, his uh, 
uh, fear of going outside and so forth. But that, like, that's his big thing. Yeah, that to me, like that as like a characteristic screams out like self-insertion for like the author, or the creative person, meta commentary about storytelling. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> Are you trying to compare me to Harold? Are you comparing yourself to Harold, David? What? Had you already left for Wild at Heart at this point? I I don't know. Did I? Was this Mark Frost? Was this his doing? Just, I mean, I don't want to say blame it on Mark if you don't know it was me, but (laughs) other people might say that. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way. they're, they're, They're too good of bros to actually do that to... Yeah, each other. I can't even make that bit stand Best on its own without backing down. Um, I, yeah, do I have... Gosh, wow, I really, like, went through all my notes. Like, I think... <gasps> nope, I didn't. I didn't Weird. I didn't even touch on what is my favorite note for this episode. What is your favorite note? What the fuck is, like, going on such that the Great Northern is always popping? There are... <laughs> You just, see i told you it was good you just blew out the audio so bad by laughing so hard because it's true when there aren't investors like for ghostwood in town sorry the place is always fucking packed there are always events being held in twin peaks which is in a super remote super like inconvenient part of washington state of of america and yet uh, this week it's the lumber queen semifinals <laughs> there's just like there's always shit going down and it's always at the great northern and i get why it's beautiful it's big it's the only like accommodation that's not a motel presumably in town but holy shit only now is it dawn me like they've got the, the barbershop quartet that one episode and now the lumber queens and i'm just like who put this place on the map? What put this place on the map? What it is, is a, it is a logging town where everybody who knows anything is convinced that the woods are evil. Like this is not a this is not a destination spot. What is your fan theory about the Great Northern? Uh, they just have a really, really, really good like sales or like booking team. Like they probably like have people who go out to like scenic hotels with waterfalls conventions and then convince people with appropriately woodsy themed or like quaint events to to host in twin peaks that's my that's my theory i'd buy that i mean you saw how hard louis was working to like you know louis is hustling louis is the reason that all of those people are always there louis is probably louis is probably the point girl for the lumber queen competition she is probably the contact at the great northern for that it's certainly not the lady at the desk and the pilot who has coffee spilled on her desk by audrey truly audrey's running running circles around her but louis louis doesn't have time for audrey shit louis is getting work done all the time (laughs) booking those booking those quaint woodsy conventions Louis going to be running the Great Northern in season three i'm calling it now prediction time (laughs) Um, is is Louis our new favorite character? Louis might be. You, you listeners, you decide. I do. It, she, I do feel like she's a little out of place because she's so peppy and easy to read emotionally. <laughs> she's she's 
so yeah she's so easy to read emotionally when everybody who's happy in this town like immediately has to smile after or sorry immediately has to like show a slight frown afterwards to show that they're conflicted on the inside yep um well you know who else is peppy this episode fucking hank I don't even want to talk about Hank. I really We gotta like, talk about Hank though. He has that awful fucking like empty who? Oh my god. <laughs> With the empty Wednesday. thing. Also, and... like, why does he care about the diner so much? Because he's trying to impress Norma. But like he's this trying is to get not Norma's good graces. The way to impress Norma. He's also like, bad at it because he's like, exactly. I'm gonna get some tablecloths and force this gross gross human being known as Toad. <laughs> into the kitchen where he's certainly not gonna do any good um i guess now is as good a time as any to talk about the damn fine food segment for this week uh are we doing that now i guess we have to do it as so like when do you want it in the next 30 minutes because it's gonna happen we usually do it at the end i don't know why you're doing this because what how much episode do we have left to discuss I have some Usenet notes. Yeah, but let's just do it before okay, Usenet. Let's do that, okay? Because we're talking about the double R. Let's talk about cheeseburger, French fries, and Coke. That's yep. the food for this week. That's the food from this episode ordered at the double R by the prosecutor. Yep, for I think Leland's the case. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we went to. Well, you picked up some Burgerville on the way here. Burgerville is a local, like Portland area fast food chain. I don't even know if it extends that. far far outside of the you know the north uh east no northwestern portion of oregon so um yeah if it's available in more places i don't know about it it's like our our less hyped up version of in and out i guess but honestly like shake shack and in and out have nothing on burgerville whoa Oh, man, we are going to get some heat on this one. This is going to be the most contentious thing we've said <laughs> ever. You just laid the smackdown on In-N-Out and Shake Shack. Holy shit. I, Burgerville is just better. They have like some rotating sides. Like They got onion rings during part of the year. They have waffle fries during part of the year. They have green beans right now for some reason. That's a new thing. I don't know how I feel about it. They've done asparagus. They always got rosemary fries. They do waffle fries. They got... Look, you know what? We're gonna be we're gonna be joined together in this, Ashley. Come at us, Twitter. Come at us, Tumblr. If you're listening to this podcast, I don't care if you work for Planned Parenthood or not. I mean, we appreciate everything you do, but if you think In and Out is better or is like the best shit, and you haven't tried Burgerville, I recommend you try it. But if you have tried Burgerville and you still think that, get at us. We will we will fight this on Twitter all the way, all the way. My mom, Ashley's mom, if you're listening and you think otherwise, cons- consider it over. We're not family anymore because it's, it's this important. To also, the food was damn fine, if you couldn't guess. It's fucking great. Um, but thank you for your support, A, because I know that was a controversial statement, controversial stance. Also, my mom is obsessed with Burgerville. I will, like, when my mom visits, I will, like, meet up with her and be like, oh, do you want to go to dinner at, like, this nice vegan restaurant? And she'll be like, oh, you know, I, I was just at Burgerville. Nice. Very nice. You know what? I mean, I mean... I want to give my mom some time to respond, but uh, in the eventuality that she either doesn't try Burgerville or tries it and doesn't like it, now I have a new Kathy as a backup. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, 
really gone off the rails with this one in such a short span of time. We're only like what are would be we, the halfway point of we, a normal episode. Are we going to hit an hour is like the key question. I kind of don't want to. You're the one who's like, oh, nothing happened this episode. Let's just I keep was... this short and snappy. <laughs> That's what I was um, telling you. My my only other like real, real episode note is just like the judge and like i don't have any like particular feelings he's kind of a fun dude kind of just another character about the town he you know runs around in a winnebago you know holding court because pretty rural area uh no centralized courthouse yeah i mean i think it's a i think it's certainly a realistic uh situation for you know who would serve as the judge for twin peaks um he's got his uh legal assistant law clerk law clerk who like turns heads like she's cute that's i don't know she's a that's a tidbit that's some information i guess there's like a prosecutor is like this uh rather large cowboy (laughs) okay (laughs) like cool yeah um with very simple taste and i respect that he's not and you know what he's there and he's not gonna like buy into that like high bullshit he's he's heard it all before he knows what he wants he knows what he wants he's not gonna get upsold on some shit he's not gonna have hank be like oh we got specials he's just like "Uh uh-uh i know what i want i'm a serious man meanwhile maddie and donna uh, forget Uh... what donna has to say here donna's just trying to drag maddie back in and maddie's like i guess and i'm just like last week maddie you were so upset you were so upset about this about like people just like dragging you in and like thinking you're Laura and so forth. Um, maybe your tune has changed now that the person who was comforting you in that time has been accused of murder. Maybe you're just kind of like not knowing what to do with yourself, and you're like, okay, I'll help Donna out again. But don't, Donna sucks. Donna sucks. She's gonna bring you down. Um, the other thing that I think is like kind of interesting about like the women who surround Laura, and I'm really specifically thinking about both Maddie and Donna right now, is. Um, there's this kind of sub-genre of films about women and about female friendship uh, that's been described as persona swap. And um, I just read this term in an article uh, that was kind of reviewing uh, Queen of Earth, which is this new film featuring Elizabeth Moss doing this like really great performance. Um, and the, the film centers around these two women going to a cabin together and their childhood friends who kind of realize they hate each other while they're there. Um, but the persona swap is kind of about, um, women and their kind of emotional burdens being swapped as you would. Um, and that being like a source of friction or a source of bonding. And I think, um, that's the genre of female friendship that we're seeing surrounding Laura. Hmm. And I don't know if it's that her problems are, are too big for her to handle. And specifically in death, they seem to consume the people around her. I mean they totally do yeah <laughs> they totally do um that's interesting i want to look more into that persona swap hmm. yeah uh definitely definitely seems a relevant term here and maybe we'll have more say on that in the coming yeah, weeks future. who knows but i think we're done talking about the goings-on of the episode and everything else we touched on prior to this uh except that hank will get his due one last time because he gets his ass handed to him that's the one good part about so much hank this episode is that two minutes of that is spent on him just getting fucked up and it's actually like you know interesting to see twin peaks do like a like a brawl scene like a yeah like a like a 
like hand-to-hand fight like it's not even close like he oh, just gets fucking. It's, it's not a, like a close fight at all don't get me wrong he gets his ass kicked but like it's choreographed in the diner and all this stuff like that's kind of cool that's different that's chill um the only other thing i was gonna say is just going back to the judge and um his scene in the the conference room with leland and talking about bail um that's just like another nice moment for ray wise where he's really um emoting um and they have that nice moment where you know the judge is like leo or leland i'm sorry to see you like this in this and, position yeah because um, leland's an attorney yep and it's a it's actually a really great speech and uh maybe you know after they've both been laid to rest they will see each other in valhalla what what judge? <laughs> mad max gonna, tie-in you're gonna bust that out now valhalla really <laughs> is now the time is that normal? Does everybody in Twin Peaks think that they're going to go to Valhalla when they die? Is that something we haven't been filled in on yet? I don't know. Rain is, there, is there an uptick in the sales of silver spray paint? Uh, okay. <laughs> this is not your Fury Road podcast, <laughs> Ashley. Save it for your Fury Road podcast, which is like actually a thing that I know you're going to do now. <laughs> Like, you're going to do that. That's going to be an episode of one of your shows. Yeah. I'm thinking about seeing it in theaters for the sixth time. You're going to, yeah, you're going to, you're going to see it in theaters for the sixth time and probably the seventh after that because you'll be like, well, I have to do the podcast. I have to take really good notes this time. (laughs) Um, I mean, I have it on DVD already, but. uh, Well, the Twin Peaks Blu-rays would have arrived today if UPS had come just a little bit later. So hopefully I'll have them tomorrow. More importantly, hopefully I'll have like some important stuff for my apartment tomorrow like more important than some blu-rays so that'll be great Eh. tell me about usenet what did the internet think of this episode that you believe was uneventful there really honestly wasn't much going on on usenet there was a lot of like what happened in the last episode let's go back to this vampire theory a lot of unrelated stuff for instance this week Sherilyn fenn's playboy spread leaked a lot oh, of messages God. about that. Yeah, I'm so um, uh, the Usenet crowd, not shocked. Yep. Um, and then theory that Bob is an owl resurfaced. We've heard that before. Um, some people also speculated that Harley Payton is a pseudonym for David Lynch and or Mark Frost and David Lynch, which is a shame for the real Harley Payton. Yeah. That people thought you weren't a real person. That stinks. Jeez. Um, um, and then someone also, this was interesting to me, uh, going back to the, the major's extraterrestrial message that he shows Cooper, where it says Cooper several times, um, someone was theorizing that that's Audrey's telepathic possession projection because she's at one eye Jacks and she's kind of praying to Cooper. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I could, yeah, why not? Yeah. And then I have one more. So someone... Maybe maybe Audrey is a really strong sender, and that's what that's saying. Even stronger than Coop. We don't know what shit Coop's beamed out into space with his mind before. <laughs> we don't know that. I would watch a whole show about that. What do you think he's doing when he makes those peanut triangles? That's totally what he's doing. Oh, he's my God. He's communing with the stars. All I right. really love that this show incorporates both the supernatural and the alien. And triangles for the Illuminati. Yep. What up, Jay-Z Beyonce? (laughs) So, but the most significant post from this week was actually about the secret diary of Laura Palmer, which had been released between seasons, and people are talking about it a lot. 
And uh, so someone went through and uh, marked all of the times that any relevant character was mentioned, made a list of all the characters that appear in the TV show but were not mentioned in the book, and then basically based on these mentions and the types of mentions, compiled a list of possible suspects uh, and major suspects. And do you have anything to say about the list that's not like maybe tipping the hand of the show too much? Um, let me take a look. <laughs> While I continue to vamp here? Okay. Um, Are you okay. No, I was about to be so clever about it too. And you just like had to. No, uh, go for it. I didn't say anything. I'm about to vamp because you mentioned the vampire thing that <laughs> that Usenet was on about. And today, my mom, who's, as we record this episode, working her way through our show, uh, decided to text me while I was at work to say that uh, when my mom was at an Anne Rice book signing in Seattle uh, between the first and second season, she saw a t-shirt. Anne Rice wrote uh, the Vampire Chronicles series. Uh, Interview with the Vampire. Yes, and uh, the Vampire Lestat is also, yeah. Anyway, she saw a shirt someone had that said Lestat killed Laura Palmer because that's like one, uh, hey, funny, like, it's, it's so both comforting to me and so, so, so frustrating <laughs> to know that people were making fucking kitschy, here's one pop culture thing I like and here's another pop culture thing I like smished together on a t-shirt shirts back in the 90s. Like, whenever I see like a fucking shirt where the time machine from Back to the Future is crashed into the TARDIS from Doctor Who. Oh, ew. Like, whenever I see something along those lines, that's two things I love. I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with Doctor Who, but I unabashedly love the Back to the Future movies. And I see that shirt, and you'd think, like, oh, like, Matt's gonna be into this. But you don't know me because I hate that shit. I hate it. But that was a shirt. Lestat killed Laura Palmer. And there were people who did think that, you know, uh, because of, like, context clues like oh um you know the thing about like uh jacoby saying like oh i think laura wanted to die uh mm-hmm. and stuff like that where it's like okay why would some like if you're picking up on that and you're trying to like figure out what this evil in the woods is and you know any of those kind of like things and just keep it more grounded in a regular supernatural mythology you'd say yeah vampire that makes sense maybe and also like I don't know if the show's done enough to give you reasons to think it wouldn't throw a vampire yeah. or some kind of vampiric force into the mix, so why not? Can I just say, like, I love your mom? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure she'll be tickled to hear that as, when she listens to this. <laughs> she anyway. Up. Okay, so... The, the suspects list, sorry. Yeah, so the five major suspects that this person outlines purely based on the secret diaries of laura palmer the number of mentions and the type of mentions that these people get okay let's do it first one's a surprise shelly johnson laura slept it's a surprise because it's totally right shelly johnson killed laura palmer (laughs) sorry no one no one on the usenet boards has previously speculated that it's shelly at all okay all right um, and they point to the fact that Laura slept with Leo, um, apparently more often than Bobby Briggs. Um, I mean, probably. Like, I haven't read the Diary of Laura Palmer, but I could guess that from the show. Yeah. Um, and then suspect number two, our favorite suspect, 
Doc Hayward. Okay. Mentioned more often. This is what this person writes. He is mentioned more often than I would expect. Little motive given, although. Doc Doc Hayward. Uh, although he's in the right places at like all the right times. He's in the, he's all over the place. This episode, he shows some sympathy for Leland, uh, which suggests that he's like totally a murderer. Exactly. Uh, he tries to prevent the autopsy on Laura's body, which is. That's oh yeah hmm yeah pretty glaring okay. Yeah, if you put all that together and the fact that just like he has there's access. never been a more evil looking man than Warren Frost. No, like what am I saying? <laughs> like, but okay, like I okay. He, this is some solid use network, by the way. We're only two out of the five right now, and I'm liking how reasonable this is. Yeah. And they also this person also notes that uh Doc Hayward would have access to Rana in the hospital in order to place the B under her nail. Shit. Now now I've mm, okay. Mm, Doc Hayward. Number one suspect. Um, number three is Harold Smith. And um, this has some spoilers for The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. And I want to put like a sexual assault rape trigger warning on this. Okay. Um, so what this person says is Laura did force him into intercourse, which seemed to upset him. That is rape. Yes. I haven't read that scene, but what that just described is rape. Yes. Wow. Um, and then uh, this person goes on to note that if Bob was tormenting Harold Smith as well, it may have driven him to murder. Um, and there are apparently some missing pages that occur in the diary after mentioning his name. Wow. Hmm. Um, that, 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 I mean, that totally uh, makes the, the Harold scenes uh, really different. I, yeah, yeah. I, I never picked up that um, as a... As a I, you know, even before doing this podcast and doing this rewatch, like there are things from the the diary that like came my way through like reading about twin peaks elsewhere um but that wasn't one of them wow yeah uh Um, okay so that's three okay so number four is ben horn okay uh kind of similar stuff from this show he has access to her he's essentially pimping her out at one-eyed jacks um also he's just like generally not a great dude Mm -hmm. um there's something to do with like He's promised revenge and the person responsible for the death of Troy the horse. And I don't know what that's referring to. And uh, apparently there's reason to believe that he could have had access to her diary in order to remove um, evidence that would suggest him as the killer. Okay. Okay. And then suspect number five, this is going to be another surprise. Johnny Horn. I've actually heard, I don't know if it was from you mentioning this from a previous week's episode on Usenet, but I've heard this theory before. I, I've i never heard this theory, so I don't think I've read it on Usenet. Okay. Um, Johnny Horn is, of course, the... The, the older brother of Audrey, uh-huh. who is... I just, I just had a momentary, like, wait, is that the only other, like, Horn sibling? And he is. Yeah. I just got the Horns and the Haywards like momentarily. Oh. Like, the there Haywards are so are, many Haywards. The, the, the there Haywards are endless is, Haywards. They're, they're just hiding daughters all over that house. <laughs> Another suspicious thing about Doc Hayward is how many secret daughters he has. <laughs> anyway. Um, moving so, on. So the Johnny Horn theory gets a little interesting. Uh, essentially, this is based on kind of the frequency of his mentions in the diary versus kind of his absence in the series. Um, and... Um, Apparently, one of the only sentences that he he speaks in the diary is, I love you, Laura Palmer. And then this person goes on to speculate if Bob was also manifesting himself 
or for him, or more likely he sensed Bob within Laura, he may have killed her to free her from Bob. Uh, which is an interesting theory, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I I wonder if when the show was airing, if I was watching the show when it was airing, if I would have gone out of my way to both get the the secret diary and then try to... Like, I wonder if I would have been a viewer who would have thought that the book would, like, tip me off significantly. Or if I would have just looked at it as, like, kind of just, like, some side flavoring, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I know that they were marketing is, like, you know, certainly anything that was being sold, like that or the, the Cooper tapes, like, as having some kind of, like, connection to the mystery. Uh and being able to kind of like put you on the right track, um, but that's that's easy to say when you know you know that there's an answer. You're mm-hmm. either like just the marketing people or the people writing it saying like, "Oh yeah, there's there's hints that I have planted." Um, when you know you know after like after the reveal if it ever happens like you can just say like yeah it's in there like someone will someone will cover my ass if it doesn't seem that obvious like someone will be like oh you could totally tell Mm -hmm. like i knew um again i will think of the mystery tease of our generation lost um and how much fucking side stuff came out for that show yeah that was all about like it will reveal the mysteries of the island. And I, I bought the Lost video game, Aww. Lost Via Domus. And what a piece of garbage <laughs> as a video game. And as a Lost tie-in, what a piece of garbage. Um, like, you got to, like, see, like, more of some locales from the show that didn't give you any fucking sense of like what those places were actually for or how they related to the island and like none of that because the showrunners even if they like knew some of where they were taking it they weren't communicating that with the team that was making the licensed Mm -hmm. product at least you can give the twin peak stuff benefit of the doubt because they were like having full like uh involvement with the creators right i mean it was it was was jennifer lynch that wrote the secret diary exactly um and then like at least like they actually had kyle record the tapes and stuff like this was all like very like above board like this is not just like some just a cheap cash in like people were putting thought and effort into this and wanting to make it fit with the show so that's at least something but you could also just say like hey writing a book and selling it that's like there's good overhead on that when you got a rabid tv audience that wants to find things out you don't really need to give them hints if you don't need to because that's what other shows have done so i wonder if i would have actually gone to that book being like this is gonna help me crack the code or if i would have been like eh depends like i guess it depends on if i was a teenager when i was watching (laughs) twin peaks or if i was hypothetically me now watching twin peaks because i think if i was me now watching twin peaks i'd probably just save my money (laughs) and not buy it at all it, yeah, it's interesting that you bring it up because I think I'm pretty into, like, world building. And I don't really mean that in, like, a, no offense, but not in, like, a Game of Thronesy, Star Wars-y type way where it's, like, a mystical, magical, whatever place. You're, um, you're, so you're, you're into 
the Lord of the Rings, maybe for the no. actual. Well, no, no. Let me make my metaphor. I know <laughs> you don't give point. a shit okay. about. You're into the Lord of the Rings, just as the Lord of the Rings. You're not into the Silmarillion or whatever that mm. like side cool book is nope. because that doesn't give you anything additional. Like you like Twin Peaks and anything that's world building. You don't want there to just be like more stuff that I know is now connected to this and it just like creates a bigger more vast world you want it to actually be like something meaningful to the content of why you're coming to it in the first place I mean I appreciate that you would give me the benefit of the doubt in that sense but I also like I'm I'm a sucker for like the creative process and I want to see like what's been discarded and like what didn't make it into the show and like what what are these like background things that are happening for the creators that we're not seeing as an audience so that's kind of my impulse to like consume these side materials and obviously you have to vet them um but like something but like having talked to you about a lot of this stuff recently it's made me a little more wary like um something recently was um what i want to no i'm sorry i'm interrupting what's the the recent oh this is like not a big you're you're gonna Am I going to laugh? When I say this, I feel like, whatever. Um, okay. So Justin Roiland recorded some vocals uh, for a video game that like oh people God. have been debating whether or not what he says, what's included in this voiceover becomes canon for the show. And like, I'm really interested in that because I want to know what's happening outside of the storylines and what's this like f- happening in this full world that the creators are imagining. But having talked to you, I get why people want to discard that. Right. Um, what I want to know is what's... Okay. Whatever the... Don't, like, hold yourself back to, like, oh, I need to just, like, keep this simple and not drag this out. For whatever media show, book, whatever it is, for whatever series it is, I guess, um, what's the... What comes to mind is like the best then side material that you've seen, like the best adjacent material. Because I want to know, I want to get a sense for, and then like why. I want to know what it was and why you were into that. Because I don't know if I'm necessarily understanding where you're coming from here with this side material thing. I have some pretty strong opinions about this kind of like expanded universe stuff and whatever. And actually, some of that's influenced by Blade Runner and multiple versions. But I want to know what your baseline for like good that is. Um, I mean, that would, I mean, the, the obvious answer is better call Saul. And I don't know that that counts in any um, sense. No, cause it's too good. It's uh, too good. Well, um, I have to, I have to really think about this then. Better call Saul. I, I mean, I, I don't think that that gets a pass because that's not like a one-off. It's not like a, a side cool, like movie or like a like a just like a one-off prequel like it is very intentionally constructed both to have some ties to breaking bad but also to be its own thing um and i i think that okay so i think this fits my positive definition where it's like it's not just like expanding a universe Mm -hmm. like it's not just saying like this is going on at the same time or in the same like continuity or whatever uh you know it's it's that but it is consciously being constructed as its own story, as its like own thing that will develop its own identity and would be good. Like you can come to Better Call Saul and it's a damn good show if you have not watched Breaking Bad. Like if you're that hypothetical viewer, you will be like, oh, there's some like, you know, hints to things that I don't understand, but you won't be lost. You won't be confused and you won't just be consuming this crap for the sake of consuming something that is adjacent to breaking bad 
you'll be you'll be there for something genuine and good. Um, but give me something that's not as good as, as Better Call Saul so I can get an idea of where you're coming from. That's not just like, oh, really quality television. No shit. That's really good. Um, I want to know something that you kind of indulge in as your, like, but not like too much, but indulge in as your side material, I guess. Okay. Um, maybe this will give you a better idea. So I really like watching deleted scenes. Okay. Um, and I think that like, that's a pretty good example of like, where, like, where, do, where do you define like, quote unquote canon? And like, how do you kind of contain a work? Um, and deleted scenes are really interesting to me, because I usually look at those as like, kind of extra um, material that kind of like, expands my understanding of the film. Obviously, sometimes there are choices that are, the reason things are cut is because they're kind of retroactively discarded and non canonized in that sense. But unless there's an obvious reason to um, dismiss a deleted scene, I usually consider it uh, a part of the essential story, even if it's not oh, included shit. in the final cut. You're crazy. I know. <laughs> no, uh, that's <laughs> one. You shouldn't use that word that way. And two. Okay, so. All right. Yeah, no, we're really opposed on this, I think. Um there are ton, there are tons of examples of deleted scenes. There are deleted scenes that have their own commentary and stuff. This is actually incredibly relevant to Twin Peaks because there's a whole like movie that is composed of deleted scenes from Fire Walk with Me because they filmed way too much movie for that one movie. Um, but okay, but this is like I think then. But like, like, but like, but like to me, those deleted scenes are the same thing or like on the same level or similar to, um, the like beautiful notebooks that Guillermo del Toro makes when he is like brainstorming a film and like working through his creative process. Like I want to see how the final product came together. I get that interest. Yeah. But I don't get where you then say like, unless it's like, you're also, like, making an allowance for if it's cut and, there, and there's, like, so, you know, there are, so I'm saying there's, like, deleted scenes that have their own, like, associated commentary, like, notes that are, like, this was cut for this reason. Like, we shot this and then we didn't like this and don't consider, it, like, this is here for the production interest, but, like, the lines that are being said and the motivations that are being expressed and whatever, like, that's not part of the, the what becomes the vision of this movie. But you're saying, like, unless it explicitly doesn't work... Or is said to not work, like you consider it as an essential part of that work, like essential key to understanding that. Not an essential key to understanding the work, because I do think there's a delineation between like the final work um, and those scenes. But I think I think of it as this kind of supplemental material that has contributed to the composition of the final work and gives insight into the creative process and the character development and the plot development that's going on. And I, I just crave that. I want to know like what else is going on. Um, that doesn't make it to the page and I want to examine the creative process and know how things came into fruition and what what else is happening off screen all right okay um yeah I mean there's something about like there's something about like a lot of deleted scenes and that kind of material um I, I wish I knew more about these notebooks that you're talking about with del Toro because then I would be able to like respond to that better but keeping it just to like deleted scenes and in, in general like when it, when there's something like this was cut because we got like part way into it and then we just ran up against limitations or we decided like 
you know, there was some kind of constraint that means this wasn't working or in the editing room. They're just like, we, we had this great idea. We thought it was going to work when we were all working in the abstract. And even with a crazy production and storyboards and all this, eventually we are just like, this doesn't work in the movie and we can afford to lose it. And it'll be a leaner, better thing. Like we do that. And like, I, you know, then for me, it becomes really difficult to, to look at that stuff that's cut and it, it's so weird. Like you wouldn't treat, I mean, you can treat, you can treat like old manuscripts of novels and things that in that way, where there are like parts that are different. In fact, you can take an old manuscript, uh, totally repackage it, <laughs> release it uh, for a quick cash grab. And do you know what I'm referring to? What are you referring to? Uh, Ghost at a Watchman. Oh, you yep. can, you can do that. And then the internet can blow up because suddenly Atticus Finch is racist and you can say, no, by all accounts, it looks like the, you know, Harper Lee's being taken advantage of here in her current state. And this thing was never meant to be seen. And, you know, aside, aside from the fact that, you know, you don't need to interpret, you don't need to come to, to kill a mockingbird with ghost at a watchman in mind. You don't have to, but even the presence of it, like shouldn't matter. Like, like there's no chance in hell that this thing was ever meant to be seen and so to then react so viscerally to be like oh my god like this changes the the way i look at this book is so dumb to me but i can see the interest in knowing like okay this was written before the book that we all know came out and this was the direction that this character was conceptualized in prior to the book that was released like i get the interest in the production process but i think i draw the line at like i don't consider deleted scenes like or anything that's like cut like i really don't consider that like um i don't consider that relevant to then the goings-on and i feel like that's especially important for things like twin peaks that matter like the plot the mystery matters so so much like i wouldn't consider i haven't watched it yet but i wouldn't consider anything that happens in that european pilot uh, that has a tacked on ending. Well, I think that's canon. that's like obviously very different because those are two like. But this it's is not. It's not one thing. It's two versions. But now this is where it gets, starts to get weird because we've both. Seen and I it. also want to note that I am on the same page as you with regards to Ghost at a Watchman. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Yeah, no, no, I wasn't trying to like say like you thought like no. Let's be clear. But I want to. But like, it's fucked up. Too. But like, but but the books that I really love, like I would love to see earlier drafts of them and see what the revision process was like and how it got like you know speculate how it got from point A to point B. Uh-huh. I that's just what i'm interested in i think i would like that too but it's but the way you were communicating so let me like i clarify consider, this more. i consider the deleted scenes my interest in deleted scenes an extension of that impulse okay and but like for- are there deleted scenes this is what i think i'm not clear on are there deleted scenes for like any work which you consider to be without anybody telling you this but because they're there and you see them you consider that to not just be like part of understanding and appreciating the work but part of the work like that's like like you just have a reaction like that's canon that's in it um so i think that this is actually a fairly complex question um because i don't think it's so straightforward as like this is part of the work or this isn't i think that like these can be like um implicit 
implicit aspects of the work um, and they can clarify implicit motivations, implicit character development, they can give more background and you can totally look at a work and say like this is bulky, we don't need it and I appreciate that it's taken out of the work for that reason but I still am interested in the fact that it exists and what it looks like. Um, and I think my primary interest in deleted scenes comes from uh, films that are cut for time. Okay, yeah. Not not for, like, character uh-huh. development reasons or plot reasons or, like, this was feeling bulky, but, like, we have to get it down to X number right, of minutes. Right. Where it, do we start cutting? We're forced to do that. That's, and that's often the, the case. Like, that's like, the case more often than it should be, probably. And you get into messy situations where then, like, eventually you have, like, a five-hour-long cut of Watchmen uh, because Zack Snyder didn't know like how to make a two three hour long movie in the first place uh so i feel like i just feel like there's so many and i'm coming at this in a big way from you know having grown up being really way into video games where cut content like is a huge deal because video games are just like undeniably if they're like you know professional 60 dollar games like in terms of the man hours they're like the human time like spent at desks across an entire large team making those things happen they're way bigger affairs in movies uh they cost way more and then as such also because like quote unquote gamers have this weird awful like sense you know of how they consume media uh, by like it's commonly held even amongst like really like on it critical people will like slam a game for not having enough content or it will come out later that they had tried to do other things mm-hmm. like there had been a version of the game that was so much more or that mm-hmm. was just so much different mm-hmm. and then people are like i paid 50 dollars, i paid 60 dollars. where's that like i deserve that why did you cut that and they get mad at the studio or they get mad at the publisher and they like there's this like real like sense of ownership to that stuff that i think as i've gotten older with like everything i come to i've started to reject like Mm -hmm. i've started to take a super like and i see it as like being very close to when david lynch is asked about a movie after the fact and he's like i'm not gonna tell you anything you go watch the movie and then the movie is there and that's the thing and you take it and that's like take it from there interpret it from there and so Mm -hmm. forth like i've started to come that way like i've seen i've peeked behind the curtains of like big video games i've peeked behind the curtains of like movies and tv enough to know that sometimes there is so much going on and that if i like started to be like oh that would have been so cool if we'd gotten it i think that for me that is a path down which madness lies um there's so much that is cool to be known about production, but then you get far enough into that that there can be like a legitimate sense of, and I don't, I don't think, and I don't think it's totally irrational. I think it's like awful when people like blow up the lives of creators because they like didn't get like the chapter of a video game or a longer cut of a movie that they thought they were promised. But to know that these ambitious projects are constrained, like if you don't start to wish that you had that that different version, you'll at least start to wish that the conditions under which these creative works were made was different. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be a little much. Like constraints mm-hmm. are as damaging for uh for like, you know, creative works as they can be like incredibly good and necessary and natural parts of the process. And I think to 
start to just be like, everything should have unlimited time and budget and everybody should be able to make their masterwork. It's just like, you'd get a lot of garbage that way. Um, like, I think so. I think it depends on what kind of work you're talking about because when you're talking about a film or a video game, it's certainly like a huge team of people and the great works that we do see require the input of a huge team of very qualified people. Um, and I'm going to include TV in that category as well. I think when you get to a book, it is different. Um, and I think that, you know, novels really require like full creative control. And I don't, uh, I don't see how a constraint in a novel would be, um, really of use. But I also want to clarify that for me, like my interest in production and my interest as a viewer are like generally like very separate things and like very separate impulses and i do like respect like the integrity of the artistic artifact as it's like presented and published and finished um and i do think you know my interest in like deleted scenes or supplemental material um does kind of bridge the gap between those two things and it's just something i enjoy um okay um I've always wondered what the hell the life of a literary agent is or like someone who like cajoles a an author into finishing their books because sometimes they're thanked and authors are just like it's so important to have this person to like actually like like it's important for me for the creative process and then you have um i don't know you have books like infinite jest where it's just like someone someone let this person go off forever and now you can see that doucher on the train reading it i don't know like but i but i think that like an editor for a novel is like very different from the like budget and time constraints that can come down from a movie studio because ultimately when you're publishing a novel you can look at these notes and they're often very helpful uh i think because it says like this thing that's working in your head isn't getting translated to the page and then the author can evaluate that criticism and see if the person who you know provided it is their audience or is really like fully paying attention to the work and ultimately they can shop their work around which you can't do with the studio yeah i think actually maybe this is a thing where it's like you know movies and games and television would all be healthier if they had an actual like more of an accepted like editorial like culture like if you could say like oh it wasn't like because it always ends up being like you know oh my god like you want to talk about community for a bit like it's always the the narrative is always like the network does something right mm-hmm. like even if it's not like being advanced by the, the people working on on the creative thing it's always like the network or the studio the publisher like wh- whatever the medium is you know fill in the noun like the orders came down and we couldn't do this thing or we got the notes back and it was this way. And it always seems like it plays into the more like, you know, corporate narrative. And I think it certainly is like more that, but maybe if there was like, if things were different such that there were people like who aren't quite producers, they're not maybe that involved, but they're there and they're like shepherding this work in a way that doesn't feel or isn't made out to be so like cold and or slimy that maybe people coming to that work and then trying to grapple with like why it is the way it is and you know why plans do or don't work out could be like Mm -hmm. oh because people are being creative and that's not something that you can like have a guaranteed outcome about ever um but instead it's always just like oh if so and so had been allowed to be totally in charge of their show things would have been better and now we got to do this and so forth and like sometimes that's gotta like a lot of the time it's gotta be an overblown reaction like it's gotta be more like you know there were there were just so many things at play like it's not worth getting upset about (laughs) 
know. Well, and the counterpoint that I would want to bring up is um, kind of the Netflix model because every, uh, most of the creators that have given interviews about their process at Netflix have said that they don't receive notes. They do what they want to do, mm -hmm. and Netflix is supportive. Netflix doesn't have a rating system. Netflix does whatever it wants to do, which is apparently putting a lot of creative control into these people's hands. And I think on average, we're seeing a huge payoff. Obviously, there are some failures, and I think we can definitely acknowledge that, that that's going to happen. What shows, like, I'm not up enough on my Netflix original series to know what shows, like, to avoid, and I should probably know this. What should I not watch on Netflix, Ashley? <laughs> um, oh, God, I don't, I don't really know. I've heard Bloodline is, like, not that good. I've heard Grace and Frankie is, like, not that good. They're not bad, but they're, like, Okay. They're they're Metacritic like generally favorable reviews, not universal. But Bojack acclaim. Horseman though, I gotta finish that. Oh, incredible. Um, um Yeah. Uh okay. I, this is this has been a super interesting conversation to me. Like again, I think like God it, there's at a certain point, like one of my one of my favorite games of all time, uh, Half Life Two, there was a version of that game that was leaked out before the final game came out and so much like content didn't make it in there. And that just, like, dogged the game. Like, I don't think there's any, like, buddy who gets seriously into that game as a fan or even as a critic who doesn't, like, you know, feel like they have to incorporate that into the narrative. And that was just, like, that was so out of the control of the creators. They got hacked and that thing was leaked. And it's just, like, when those things happen and then people, like, you know, they can't just come to it without them, like, the meta narrative starts to to cloud things it's just like what about the what about the game though what about the thing what about the movie you just watched now which is why i want to say sorry i've been blabbering on about this too long but holy shit the missing pieces though are just cutting room floor stuff that then years and years later david lynch actually like maybe uncharacteristically said i'm gonna put this together into like a feature length thing yeah, that is very, very anti-Lynch. It just dawned on me how weird that is while we're having this conversation, yeah, which is why I'm really like super into it. It's really um, weird. And I'm going to watch it soon. Yeah. Um, but the other point I was going to bring up uh, is um, director's cuts. And um, I think that, like, you made, uh, you know, a good point about, like, uh, constraint and creative control. And this is just, like, really piggyback piggybacking off of my Netflix thing. But a lot of the really great films that are then released as director's cuts, those director's cuts become, you know, more prolific and more well-known. And those become the Criterion Collection editions. And I think that, um, I mean, that's an argument for, like, an auteur's creative control. Yeah, I think it is definitely a solid argument to bring up Blade Runner again. Like, the director's cut is a definite... I think there's just, like, you can't... Like, if, you're, if your preference is the version with the, like, kind of tacked-on noir uh, narration, like, I don't get it. Um, it's so obvious watching that version that it doesn't work f in service of the movie. Um it doesn't feel right in the movie. And then you see the director's cut and it's like, oh, but if you're me, you see the director's cut first and later you come and you're just like, this is tacked on. So it complicates that to hell and back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, what I was thinking of is um, the Donnie Darko director's cut. Oh my gosh. Have you seen Donnie Darko? The first time I saw Donnie Darko, I was at my, <laughs> I was a, you know, I was a teen as you are when you see Donnie Darko yep. typically. Um, I hadn't, you know, first time. So I'm at my friend Jared's house and this other kid, Kevin, is there. I think 
shout out to Kevin if you ever hear this. I think I think you're out there like making move making movies, trying to do film school, maybe. But what you said, I will never forget in the context of Donnie Darko, which is that before the movie started, you're like, oh, my God, you have to watch this movie like six times to get it. And I think you just meant the time travel stuff. And you were wrong. (laughs) You were so wrong. It's so it's pretty easy to follow. If you meant like deeper thematic things, I respect that. I, you know, cool. Like uh, what's what's the name of the dance troupe? Sparkle motion. Sparkle motion. Like if you like can write an essay on sparkle motion and how it fits into the greater film after watching it six times, like more power to you. But if you just meant like how the time travel is going on, maybe you fell asleep halfway through the first five watches. Oh. I don't know. You're being so mean to Kevin. I'm being kind of, I'm kind of dragging Kevin, but also like. I'm a like look. I watched the movie Primer and I sought it out because it was like quote unquote really complicated. I don't even need to do the unquote. It is a really complicated time travel story. So like I I think highly of myself in that weirdly hyper specific way. Um, but what I was gonna say is like the I mean the director's cut is um. It feels like a fuller movie. It feels like um, especially because I think is it a lot longer. It's not that much longer. Wait, have okay. you seen the director's cut or the regular version? I, the theatrical. You know what? I couldn't tell you because it was just um, the one, whatever was on the DVD. Do you remember many details of when you saw Donnie Darko or should I, I not press you? I think I've seen it twice and <laughs> that's definitely no more recent than like 17. So, um, Okay, we'll talk about this later. But I, I want to go. I know, I, know, I know the song. Okay. No, stop that. There's a there are a lot of really great '80s ballads on that soundtrack. First of all, yeah. Um, but I know I, Seth Rogen's in it. That's oh my god! You're like shaking the couch with how it's hard you're so laughing. Funny, his role in that movie is so weird. That's yeah. That's him. But um, I actually like. I think this is a good example because um, I think that there's a lot of creative work going on in Donnie Darko, and obviously it's like a movie you watch as a teen, and you feel like it's really deep, and then you feel ashamed because this was something you were into as a teen but there's a lot of like interesting creative work going on by um the director slash screenwriter richard kelly um and ultimately um i feel like the director's cut version better exemplifies this like wholly creative world that he engaged in and comparing the two versions i feel like the theatrical version feels like it's missing things it doesn't it doesn't feel right to me yeah i guess i guess when it comes to revisions of work i maybe have a different stance um but i think it's i think i i stand by the like maybe it's more trouble than it's worth to 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 read into it as like part of the work which i know is in what you're even saying at this point um or we're ever saying just really trying to understand what you're saying (laughs) really trying to keep up with you now that now that you fully come in come into your full-on podcast mode now that we don't have to talk about the episode where not much happened um but i do want to acknowledge that sometimes tie-in works are fucking terrible (laughs) the fucking furiosa origin comic i will fucking fight the person who wrote that you'll fight them hand to hand you'll fight them in the thunderdome (laughs) (laughs) there Um, was also this terrible uh 
Tumblr blog tie-in for a season of Shameless <laughs> where like this character was absent and they were like, he's going to keep a blog while he's away and you can check up on it. Oh, you know it what's... was the most out of character thing I have ever read. You know what's one of the better web tie-ins was when they made the Walter White uh website for breaking yes. bad with the with the, the donation page <laughs> you can visit it is it super great um that's like everything i've ever loved about breaking bad that's the right way to do it um on the subject of twin peaks i mean so i don't there was there's never been a different version of a david lynch movie that's come out right there's never been a director's cut version nope um but like then you can get in real nitty gritty and be like, well, when they transfer it on film to like a better like master, like is that itself enough to be considered a revision? Like, especially if it like given the way that most people can interact with it, like if it if the color grading and stuff looks significantly different now, like That's true. is that lending something different to the work? Um, but missing pieces, God, we're gonna have a, like I think I think given the context like we can't not have this conversation like just like how we can't have a conversation about donnie darko or blade runner we're just like if what we saw first was the director's cut of the theatrical version or whatever does that mean we're just like gonna be like no that's what i respond to is like the baseline Mm -hmm. first and given that this thing was like the context of it is people knew that so much of what had been filmed for fire walk with me was just like left on the cutting room floor and that's the way it was going to be for the longest time and then suddenly they announced the blu-rays and they said also all that is its own thing now and it's being crafted into this different thing mm-hmm. with 20 years of time elapsed after it like this is footage filmed in 1992 91 92 mm-hmm. that is being approached by david lynch after on the air after uh Mulholland Drive nope before oh after yeah yeah no I'm saying like this is being edited like just a couple years ago so after Mulholland Drive after the straight story yeah that's called the and Inland Empire and then after a long period of time not making feature-length things like in a way that's the first movie he's done in a while if you want to approach it but actually like all of it was filmed so long ago um so god look forward to that podcast months from now that is just like everything i love about bonus features like i bought the blu-ray version of mad max because there is a black and white version with a stripped down soundtrack and i am so excited to watch it what the fuck yes oh we're gonna have to watch that we're gonna have to watch that oh my god i'm so excited uh so yeah blu-rays are on the way and clearly we're stoked. Actually, there's another interesting thing that I kind of that's kind of on topic, and I want to get your perspective on. So Steven Soderbergh retired after directing his seminal feature, Magic Mike. Uh huh. Um, although he still like does stuff for like the Nick and stuff, but um, so he retired, and then he um like just hanging out at home, and he recut 2001: A Space Odyssey and released it on his oh, website. Right, I heard about that. Like that. I mean that's like only tangentially related, but like, how do how do we even deal with that? Is that tangential fan works like that? Like, because that's a fan work. It is. It is, but and it seems super... it seems legit because it's Soderbergh, but it's, it's but a it's, fan work. <laughs> but it's so not. It's so not. It's Virgil writing the Aeneid. Um, 
so what do I want to say about this? Uh, I just think that that's like a wild thing that happened. I mean, we're talking about director's cuts. And of course, the thing that people like if people wanted to like, you know, not have a real conversation and just load a silver bullet to kill the idea of a director's cut, they could say Star Wars quite easily mm-hmm. because I don't think that anybody goes to the, you know, improved editions of those movies and says actually that they're in any way improved, either like le- visually or content wise. Like you know the, that... the CG is bad and mm-hmm. also they fucked up the story. Like, and that's not universal. And of course, fans latch on to that and get real like upset about it but then there's like the fan cuts there are people who've restored star wars back to the way it was there are people who have come up with their own viewing orders and then there are people who are like like what does it mean when a real like a self-proclaimed fan whether or not they're really like you know trying to like bring in like a literary analytic eye to the thing that they love so much you know, I, I don't want to get like you know too like ivory tower about like oh they're not appreciating it the right way they're just fans. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does it mean when a large group of people who are invested in that work suddenly switch their focus to this fan work because they see it as better, like this this fan interpretation of it that is not just like a theory that they subscribe to or something or an interpretation of the work itself, but actually like a different beast now now that it has been in somebody else's hands like what the fuck what the I fuck society what really the fuck inter- media that's <laughs> so interesting to me because i definitely think that there are cases where creators don't un fundamentally misunderstand their own works and i know that sounds kind of wild especially because i'm someone that's really interested in like authorship and like whatever um but there are just shows where i think it's been demonstrated that like people it was it was like widely understood that like the point of the show or the thing of the show or its premise or its conceit or whatever was one thing that's like very quickly discarded right so once we're done with the podcast like the whole show we've seen all the twin peaks stuff we can see um it's gonna be it's gonna be real hard for david lynch and mark frost because we're gonna once we've cracked the nut of this after we've completed the podcast you and i are gonna go re-edit all of twin peaks we're gonna remove dick tremaine and like do our own like but like we're joking about this but suddenly the idea of a twin peaks where dick tremaine isn't there is super exciting to me and you know that even if we did a bad job some people would be into it and it would be a thing and we'd be on like Boing Boing or something and be like, check out the Twin Peaks fan edit that like removes all the bad shit and most of the back half of season two. Uh, people like, like that, that's a thing. People are probably already doing that with the show. Yeah. And then. I really want to do then, that. And then there's like, if that becomes a thing, there's no way in which like, you know, I don't want to be like too like butterfly effecty about it, but like the existence of these things influences like, it's like the existence of crit- crit- criticism influences, obviously, what comes next in a series right. or in a person's, like, you know, body of work. Right. But, like, I mean, now my mind's spinning. Like, do you think when he was, like, making the third episode of Star Wars, the, the, the latest one, George Lucas was being like, wow, people really hated the last two I did. Like, I really got to step it up. People are, like, are already, like, recutting those it's... and recontextualizing those. Like, that's nuts to me. 
Well, like, criticism is really wild. Like, um, the showrunner for True Detective, Nick Pizzolatto, or whatever his name is, um, he, like, received all this criticism. I, this? I, I don't... Nick uh, Pizza Pie, uh, <laughs> whatever his name is. <laughs> I'll fight him. Um. <laughs> <laughs> You're just ready to go. You started off so... You started off this, this two-hour romp so, like, withdrawn, and now you're just ready to punch punch creators in the face um but it's interesting because um you know he received all this criticism for like not having not investing in female characters during the first season of true detective and then people were like well so you're writing season two like what's that like are you are you uh taking this into account and he says oh yeah i was and then i thought about it and i don't think it's valid so no we could have had a totally different second season of true detective and i know that this is anti like what you were saying oh no 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 like that that statement is anti what i was saying but given like (laughs) i i I don't take much problem with this because true detective is its own big mess and it's like yeah a different version of that second season would probably like benefit us all it would probably for our splinter universe it'd probably be better (laughs) (laughs) uh not to get too rick and morty on this but um yeah uh, but it's it's so crazy because you don't want to like temper like the raw creative process and i know that that's like this weird intangible thing and i sometimes get fed up with people who really read into the idea that like the creative process is this like untenable thing that you have to like submit yourself to but ultimately like it is a concern because you don't want to produce something that's just a reflection of criticism and of people's taste you want to create something right. that's original and that has um uh, that you can kind of pour yourself into Right. I just want to, sorry, I remember what I was struggling to say, which was, God, what a shitty way to answer that question. I was considering (laughs) it, this, like, valid line of, like, feminist criticism. And I even, like, it's not, it's just like, dog, you need some women in your show. He literally said, I don't consider it valid. (sighs) Like, you can't answer a question well is what I just learned about you. Like, Yeah, I mean, the whole tone was like, you you didn't really understand the show, so I don't really care what you say. Fuck that noise. But, okay, last thing then. This this back half of the podcast, suddenly, like, the time flew by. But with all we've said, and particularly what you just said about, you know, the, the cult of, like, submitting yourself to the creative process and that being unassailable and mysterious and so forth, do you think David Lynch takes himself too seriously when he talks that way? No, I love it. I get annoyed with people on like a personal level when that happens. If we're like relating on like an artistic or a creative level, there's a certain degree to which I can deal with it. My frustration comes from people who are like, my creative process is like being an asshole to people and like hanging out in coffee shops and like drinking a lot or stuff like that. Okay. Do you get what I'm saying? uh I mean, it also annoys me when people are like, I can't be constrained. Like, this is my creative process and they have like nothing to back it up. If you have like a good creative process that is consistently turning out like really quality work, like that's something that I want to respect. But if you can get away with that and he's not even he's not even committing the cardinal sin you've identified, which is being an asshole about it. Yeah. You know, he just says like, oh, Mulholland Drive, all the production stuff happened. And then when I, you know, sat down to make it a movie, it became what it was meant to be. That's not really a dick, <laughs> a dick no, statement. So I'm totally fine with that. Okay, cool. Well, um, let's close this out. I'm Matthew Olson. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Matthew Olson. Matthew with one T, O-L-S-O-N. I do another podcast, just one, <laughs> with my friend Caitlin Best called Can You Get to That? You can find that also on Simplecast. Uh, yeah, 
it's a comedy show and maybe this is the last thing i say for this podcast ashley just close out the whole thing from here (laughs) um i talk too much okay um so i'm ashley brant you can find me on twitter at ashley brant um you can find us this podcast on twitter tumblr facebook if you search twin peaks peaks that is our username across all three of those platforms i post different stuff on all of those platforms so there's always newish stuff happening um and it's really cool when you guys reach out to us and like let us know that you're watching or you're responding you're not watching you're listening and responding to what we're saying um that's really fun it like brightens up my day when that happens and um i am currently hosting two other podcasts uh one is yeah i've seen that with sandra deanda our first episode went up earlier this week and we were talking about the emmy nominees uh for for the 2015 emmy uh emmys and um that award show aired on sunday um and we're going to be tackling uh classic movies as well as topical movies um she will maybe be guesting on this podcast and she's hilarious and really great so look forward to that and then coming out real soon or by the time this podcast airs is the k-hole um the only kardashians podcast on itunes in which we talk about uh both keeping up with the kardashians the show and real-time kardashian news it's gonna be great do you have something you want to say okay um and that's all for me so um you asked me earlier why I say these grapes are on edge instead of these grapes are right on the edge. And I like that it <laughs> makes <laughs> it makes the grapes sound like they're anxious. <laughs> so <laughs> these grapes are right on edge.